Welcome to Tradecraft. International trade makes headlines, especially when disputes arise among countries. Business is on the front lines of these disputes, but they are waged over politics and law. Join host Colin Janik in conversation with trade expert and Georgetown University professor Mark Bush as Tradecraft takes an in-depth look at trade issues making headlines today and the ones that will be making headlines tomorrow. This is Tradecraft. Mark, welcome back. Hey, Colin, good to be with you. There's a trade deal that's making a lot of headlines these days, and it's not one involving the United States. It's the UK-Japan trade deal, and it's important because it's the first UK trade deal post-Brexit. In fact, UK International Trade Minister Liz Trust called it a groundbreaking British-shaped deal. But the question is, how groundbreaking is it And how much has it really been shaped by Britain? The media are asking whether it's all that different from EU Japan, which was launched in February of 2019. And the reality is that it maps closely, right down to the geographical indications that the UK was able to lay claim to. But there are some add-ons like digital trade. And it's amazing that there are these add-ons given that it was negotiated over the summer. Now, That's heroic, but it also came at a price. Japan had to lower its expectations for a truly comprehensive deal, and the UK maybe gave up on an opportunity to get a little more from Japan, notably on investment. Both sides were hopeful, and now the question is, will this deal do anything more than simply level the playing field vis-a-vis the European Union? Or will it be something deeper, something that does more? Right. And one belief is that maybe this is the bridge for the UK to join CPTPP. A deal that the US withdrew from months after Trump came to power. I don't want to ask, though, how this relates to EU-Japan. What I like to ask is, how does it relate to USMCA, the United States-Canada-Mexico agreement that is President Trump's signature trade deal? Because after all, all eyes are on a US-UK trade deal. Let's do that. So are there big differences here that would have to be overcome? Are there interesting tensions? There are a few, and I want to look at several. I'm going to stick to the regulatory stuff. So I'm going to focus on one SPS measure, a sanitary and phytosanitary measure, one TBT issue, technical barriers to trade, and one dispute settlement issue. The reason for my focus is pure and simple, curiosity, intrigue, and a love of these chapters in particular. But let's start from the beginning, and that is that Whatever this deal is, UK-Japan, it is not expected to do a lot to increase trade between the two countries. The estimate that the government has offered is that it will contribute about 0.07% to GDP growth, which isn't a lot, but the predictability that it sets down will be important. And this taps a variety of themes that we've been raising in prior episodes one of which is just the sheer heterogeneity of trade deals. It's not a one-size-fits-all. They come in different forms, different fashions, different scopes. 
And this is no exception. Absolutely. Well, let's start with SPS. I got to say that on sanitary and phytosanitary, we're hearing a lot about chlorinated chicken. We dealt with that in a prior episode. I went looking for key links between what UK Japan does and what USMCA does. And my attention was first drawn to, under UK Japan, Article 6.13 on emergency measures on SPS. This is some interesting stuff. How so? First, it's a holdover from EU Japan. And it reads, a party may adopt emergency measures that are necessary for the protection of human, animal, or plant life or health. When adopting such emergency measures, the competent authority of that party shall, and then it sets out terms. Procedures. And that's my big theme today. What I find notable about the UK's first foray into a post-Brexit trade agreement drafting mode is that, generally speaking, USMCA on certain key chapters has a greater emphasis on procedural plus provisions. What the UK-Japan deal does is it gets a number of the substantive plus provisions. Right. Trade agreements are supposed to go beyond the WTO. They're supposed to deliver on more than what the WTO already gives them. After all, why would anybody want to renegotiate what they already have? Again, a theme that we've talked about in prior episodes. But those plus provisions come in two fundamental forms. One is substantive, i.e., where is the science from? And the other is procedural, i.e., how is it that foreign stakeholders get to offer meaningful input into the identification of a technical regulation? My read of UK-Japan is that it's more about the former than the latter that there aren't as many of the procedural plus provisions as we find even under USMCA. In that regard, there's more language under USMCA on these so-called plus provisions. Okay. There's also more on transparency. I've got to say that it's striking that the US dedicates 14 articles to transparency. UK Japan does too. And there's a lot more attention to the things that we were talking about in the context of chlorinated chicken, such as the appropriate level of protection and less trade-restrictive means of realizing that A-law. This is all stuff that's quite interesting in terms of differences between what it is that the UK got with Japan and what it is that the UK might expect to be asked for from the United States. Moreover, under UK-Japan, the SPS chapter isn't even covered by dispute settlement, whereas it is under USMCA after technical consultations. That's a theme we're going to come back to. The USMCA is pretty firm on getting a lot of the regulatory stuff subject to dispute settlement, not so much UK-Japan. Now, surely this is a holdover from EU-Japan and just an EU negotiating strategy more generally. But it is interesting. And you do get much more attention in the SPS chapter under USMCA to things that sound like linking up that ALOP to something less trade restrictive. That will matter in terms of 
what litigation might look like over something along the lines of chlorinated chicken, assuming that didn't just go to the WTO. So that's SPS. What are you seeing when it comes to technical barriers to trade? When you move over to technical barriers to trade, meaning labels, licensing, and certification, the UK-Japan deal largely follows the same lead as EU-Japan. For example, it focuses on specific sources of standards around which to potentially coordinate, if not harmonize on. This really isn't done to the same extent under USMCA. What do you mean by that? In other words, the UK is naming groups like Codex, like the World Forum for the Harmonization of Vehicle Regulations. It's more than just ISO. It's more than just the annexes under the WTO. They're actually doing more naming. Is that interesting? Potentially. But there's also something in common. Namely, under UK-Japan, there is an anti-forum shopping provision such that, and this is language from UK-Japan, Articles 2 through 9 of the WTO, if that's what the dispute is over, the dispute goes to the WTO, not to UK-Japan. So the big picture here is that at first blush, there is a little more effort under UK-Japan to fill in some of the sources of content, some of that substance in terms of naming international institutions from which these standards might be derived, whereas under USMCA, it's much more of a WTO approach. Interesting. And there's another big difference here that we had talked about before recording, and that's in terms of developing a technical regulation or conformity assessment procedure. UK Japan says that, quote, when developing a technical regulation or conformity assessment procedure, which may have a significant effect on trade, then you're supposed to draw on the other side, namely stakeholders from the other country. This too is a holdover from EU Japan. In fact, it maps perfectly in terms of the article number per chapter. However, it's not what is under USMCA. The word significant is really interesting. How significant? Now, don't get me wrong. The word that is used under USMCA is major. But there are far more access points established, in my view, under USMCA than what we're seeing under UK-Japan. So whatever it is that one distinguishes significant from major on the basis of, there are still more procedural plus provisions being worked out through USMCA. And that's because the US takes TBT very, 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 very seriously. Right, we've talked about that before as well. Now, if you follow along, there's also another chapter that's interesting, and I'm gonna relate it to TBT. Good regulatory practice. We have this chapter in both agreements, UK-Japan and USMCA. It's an interesting chapter. I've always seen it as facilitating TBT to an extent. What's interesting is the different philosophies on dispute settlement between the two agreements. Under UK-Japan, this is not actionable, not subject to dispute settlement, i.e. good regulatory practice. Under USMCA, the language is, it is actionable if it concerns, quote, sustained or recurring courses of action or inaction. So again, 
you've got this different procedural side to the equation, which is going to matter a lot in terms of how the two sides deal with these regulatory issues, which in the case of trade among these countries, and in the case of trade between the United States and Europe more generally, is a really big deal. Mark, let's now turn to dispute settlement. What are you seeing there? I find interesting two features. One is that there's a little bit of an emphasis on the panel taking a pretty active role under UK-Japan. 22.7 says that the panel shall, quote, consult regularly with the parties and provide adequate opportunities for achieving a mutually agreed solution. This, too, is a holdover from EU-Japan. That is not in USMCA. The idea of the panel actually taking a role in trying to facilitate a mutually agreed solution is kind of different. It's different than the WTO. It's different than USMCA. It's kind of interesting. But there are a number of chapters under UK-Japan that are not subject at all to dispute settlement. You've got issues with respect to all three flavors of trade remedies. And what about forum shopping? Under UK-Japan, you get the standard choice of forum provision. 2227 says it exactly as you'd imagine it to say, dating well back to NAFTA days. Namely, choice of forum is at the discretion of the complaining party. Once chosen, that choice is pursued to the exclusion of the other. Keep in mind that, as I said, under TBT, you've got the anti-forum shopping provision. Now, the anti-forum shopping provision really made its debut under the original text for the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And what's interesting about the novel features of UK-Japan is that many of them derive from that agreement, namely CPTPP. I was chatting with Martin Bell of the Scotch Whiskey Association who observed that one of the wins for the spirits industry under UK-Japan is a very technical IP issue, which comes from CPTPP. So you can see how these institutions are beginning to share parts and components and things of that sort. And there's a little bit of mixing and matching, not least when you're under time pressures to get a deal done over the course of three months. But there are some notable differences. And in my view, what always made USMCA's chapters on SPS and TBT quite creative was the procedural plus stuff, not so much the substantive plus stuff. And you're not seeing that in UK Japan. You're not witnessing some of the emphasis on process. But the process is crucial because you're ultimately vetting how you're dealing with the science, how you're dealing with a risk assessment, how you're dealing with an ALOP. And that's really state-of-the-art. It's the procedural plus stuff that is going to matter a lot. Moreover, in terms of just following through on language that is taken wholeheartedly from EU-Japan and may even come close to USMCA, a big question is, how will the UK figure out how to deliver on certain of these procedural plus provisions? Such as, what does it mean to offer foreign stakeholders access to those negotiations, those meetings, those deliberations that are themselves open to the public? And what about substantive input? What about early drafts before the penultimate draft is going forward? 
how will the UK figure this out? These are big question marks. So even if not all the text is brand new or different, you've still got some big questions looming for the UK. And they're more on the process than on the substance of where they're shopping for input that sounds like science, sounds like standards, sounds like an effort to harmonize. Mark, we got into the weeds there, but really interesting observations. And zooming out a bit, I was struck by how much of a role CPTPP played in the deal's announcement, not just in the media coverage of the deal, but in the two parties' framing of the deal. Did you expect that? It's clear that there's some borrowing from TPP or CPTPP today. No doubt about it. And the fact that the UK is eyeing this as a bridge to that important block of countries is certainly interesting when you then think about what will be required in terms of the US striking deal with the UK en route to hopefully one day rejoining that block of countries. But the emphasis on certain of these procedural aspects will, of course, be different in the light of how the US views the philosophy about multiple equilibria in the context of letting the market determine which equilibrium ultimately should prevail. We've called this before the performance versus provenance issue with respect to regulatory affairs. And I got to say that the U.S. still looks different than a lot of other countries, including those in the TPP, when it comes to this. So it's going to be interesting to see how these bridges all connect, if at all. But connecting these bridges is becoming a big deal, not least in some of the other trade agreements that we're witnessing right now, such as those taking place in Africa. I can't just let you dangle that there. So what's going on in Africa? You've got in the case of their efforts to coordinate something on a continent-wide basis, this new concept of reciprocal MFN, which will pose great challenges in the event that U.S.-Kenya rolls out, and then other efforts are done with various African countries, given that the message has been in this effort at integration that that's really not the way to go. And moreover, with conditional MFN, namely that you reciprocate on a bilateral basis the tariff concessions on offer, this is going to pose really interesting challenges to the growth of these webs of PTAs, but not unlike what you've heard here in the United States over the past summer, where Ambassador Lighthizer said, this is beginning to be a little bit of a race, and maybe we should be going back to the WTO and taking that a little more seriously. That certainly is the sentiment that one gets when reading the negotiating papers coming out of Africa, that their view is to do this in a more holistic way, but that they definitely see that the horse is out the barn door and there's nothing to bring back PTAs. Mark, this deal went further on digital trade than the EU-Japan deal. An add-on, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, were you surprised that this was included? Yes, I was surprised that the UK was able to push forward on a digital chapter when in fact EU-Japan didn't include one. There's a win. There's something post-Brexit that the UK can claim victory on. It is, however, something that will be a piece of art in progress 
for quite some time. And I got to say that that raises another issue, which is the work of the committees. Let's go back to SPS and TBT. You've got the committees that are gearing up in both USMCA and under UK Japan, and for that matter, EU Japan, to do a lot of this evolving, to do a lot of the growth and the progress that is supposed to be realized shy of outright renegotiation or dispute settlement. And that too will require a good bit of thinking in terms of staffing, in terms of getting right the mindset of what the committee does and what it doesn't do. So for SPS and TBT, obviously cues will be taken from the WTO experience, but you can imagine that especially with some of the procedural plus provisions, the committees will have their hands full. And I dare say that will require that the UK government get its head around what that role is. There's a bigger picture too, which is that in the United States, the relationship between government and business is much more enshrined in a transparent and systematic input process that is rather robust and for many countries is considered to be one of the envies of the US system. Can the UK figure out a system like that such that government isn't in vacuo, but is listening to the input of business and other stakeholders such that the focus on drafting non-discriminatory language is more fully informed by real business models. Mark, we didn't witness the same friction around agricultural issues in this UK-Japan deal that are anticipated in any US-UK deal or future US negotiations with Japan. How does the deal differ on ag when comparing it to, say, USMCA? I'm not privy to what Japan might have wanted in a more comprehensive deal, but I seriously doubt that it was on SPS. In the event of borrowing from the EU-Japan deal, it's not surprising that we see what we see. Europe has always had a different philosophy with respect to negotiating, especially SPS plus provisions. And so I'm not surprised by the disconnect between what we see under USMCA and what we're seeing here, given the carryover. But it is important to realize that a lot more language is useful and actionable under USMCA than what we're witnessing under UK-Japan. Let me read Article 913, Paragraph 8 from USMCA. You're just not seeing this kind of language under UK-Japan. It reads, a party that proposes to adopt an SPS measure shall discuss with another party on request and when appropriate during its regulatory process any scientific or trade concerns that the other party may raise regarding the proposed measure and the availability of, and here's the key, alternative, less trade-restrictive approaches for achieving the party's appropriate level of protection. For me, that encapsulates one of the biggest differences between USMCA and what the US will want from the UK and what the UK just gave Japan. It's that emphasis on less trade-restrictive alternatives as part of the process of vetting the measure and not waiting for dispute settlement. That is something that stands out as a glaring difference. Interesting. Mark, as we close out, I want to take us a little bit off theme. 
politically, how much reward will the UK government get for essentially delivering EU Japan? And if the negotiating template doesn't change going forward, what will be the reaction of those who are favoring staying within the EU, those no votes on Brexit? This is the issue on the regulatory side that will ultimately confound any future government trying to explain how it is that Brexit was worth the candle if, in fact, on the regulatory side, the UK is delivering exactly what it was delivering when it was part of the EU. That's a hard sell, politically speaking. But then the question is, change what? Let's say that you ultimately wanted to have the UK stamp on the template for future trade deals. Where? On the procedures? On the substance? More American style? That was, after all, the incentive for the US to, at least in theory, hope that it could beat the EU to the punch, get a deal with the UK, and get the UK doing regulatory more like the US does it. Didn't happen. So now the question is, Given that the political reward to the government for delivering something like UK-Japan will in part be tarnished by the fact that it looks a lot like EU-Japan, especially on regulatory, what would a future government do, or this government in a future trade deal, including with respect to CPTPP, have as a way of something unique that looks truly UK-ish? That's a hard question to answer. That's a big challenge, though, politically speaking, because one can imagine the backlash over having gone through this, especially given that much of the trade bureaucracy was clearly pro-EU. Now you have Brexit. Now you have this blank slate, and it doesn't look that blank. It's looking very much like what Brussels had been dictating for years. Mark, a really valuable comparison here between the UK-Japan deal and USMCA and a handful of thought-provoking questions raised. Great to see you as always, and thanks so much for your time.